0: Today, we continue our coverage of the war in Ukraine, the latest from the battlefield, as well as the shockwaves rippling across world politics and the economy. We'll also discuss how the dictatorship of capital continues to imperil lives amid the pandemic, an impending wave of utility shutoffs and more.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity.
0: Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's March 22nd, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And register for our monthly seminar with Brian, which we've rescheduled for Monday, March 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Patrons can submit questions to Brian to address on the seminar and ask questions live during the discussion. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Walter Smolarik and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ibarim is out today. Brian, let's start with the latest in Ukraine.
1: Well, Nicole, the latest in Ukraine is that there is fierce fighting in the city of Maripol. Maripol was, several years ago, under the control of the breakaway republics, the Donetsk or Luhansk People's Republics. It was recaptured by the Ukrainian military with a very strong presence of the Azov Battalion. These are the right-wing neo-Nazi or Nazi forces. In that area, they've been incorporated into the National Guard, when Putin and the Russians are making the argument that they're denazifying the country, of course, we have made the point that, you know, the actual influence of Nazi political forces in the Rada in the parliament has diminished. And in fact, they only got about 2% of the vote in the last parliamentary elections, meaning it would be wrong to characterize the dominant political forces in Ukraine As Nazis. But nonetheless, the Azov battalion and the right sector and the other Nazi forces do exist in Ukraine. They played the major role in overthrowing the Yanukovych government in the coup in 2014. That had been the neutral government that tried to position Ukraine between NATO and Russia. And those forces are very strong in Maripol. And in fact, some of the civilians who have come out through the humanitarian corridors that were established have made the argument, at least this is being reported in the Russian media. And of course, that doesn't mean we should believe it, but Americans never hear the Russian media at all. They only hear the echo chamber for the U.S. war machine with the U.S. mainstream media. The Russian media is giving a platform to these civilians who are saying that they were actually blocked from leaving Maripol by the Azov fighters, meaning that they were being used as human shields. Anyway, Walter, let's talk about Maripol and where the conflict is right now. Fierce fighting. Maripol, it looks like, could fall sometime soon. Of course, that would be key to creating a land bridge between Crimea, between the Crimean Peninsula in uh, the Black Sea, all the way to the Russian mainland on the eastern part of Ukraine.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it seems like it could be a matter of days. The head of the Donetsk People's Republic said that it could take up to a week. But it seems like Maripol is likely to be the me- next major urban center captured by the Russian armed forces and their allies. And so as a consequence, I think that's become the focal point of corporate media coverage in the West. And, you know, I agree with what you said about the fog of war. And, you know, certainly I wouldn't be dismissive of the idea that that many, many Ukrainian civilians are, are dying in Maripol. But it also seems to me to be totally credible, the reports that are being circulated in, in Russian media, that, members of the Azov Brigade and other neo-Nazi extreme ultranationalist forces are preventing civilians from leaving. I mean, this, what's going on right now is like the final showdown that they've been waiting for since 2014, since the armed struggle broke out when the separatist republics announced their independence in response to the 2014, the February 2014 coup. So yeah, I mean, they want the entire people to give up their lives essentially in order to make this big final battle that they've been waiting for a success. And so they know that it's, of course, politically damage, extremely politically damaging for Russia to essentially level Ukrainian cities and cause large numbers of civilian casualties. And that's, that's why the Russian armed forces has been comparatively like very, very careful in the Ukraine war. Again, not to say that there aren't lots of civilians dying, but compared with other armed conflicts in the recent past, They're going to great lengths to minimize civilian casualties, I think. You know, capturing cities or the
1: failure to capture cities is being identified in the mainstream Western media, certainly the U.S. media, as the test to whether or not Russia is succeeding. But Russia may not, in the main, be trying to capture cities. I mean, like take Kiev or the other major cities in Ukraine. It's very possible that the Russian military Strategy here is less to do with capturing cities and more to do with surrounding Ukrainian military units and compelling them to surrender. I mean, when one looks back at military doctrine and military strategy, the issue of capturing cities, which is always presented in the media in a sort of sensational way, is the most important thing, the telling indicator of whether a military campaign is succeeding or not. It may, in fact, be
2: secondary to the overall military strategy. Well, I think certainly the preferred outcome, like the plan A outcome for the Russian military, would be a political collapse of the Ukrainian government. That would be the fastest way to resolve the war on the terms that Russia wants it resolved on. And it would it would minimize essentially the economic fallout that the Russian economy deals with and the political and diplomatic fallout. I mean, I think they were hoping that within the first few days of the war, within the first few hours even the zelensky government would collapse under the weight of the of the extreme shock right that the the military campaign uh was actually happening and that it was targeting the entirety of the country but that didn't happen and so You know, there's speculation that Russia is now changing its tactics. I think there are some indicators in terms of the language that the Russian media and Russian politicians are using that could indicate that they have come to the conclusion that a more long-term military presence is needed, or at least in the areas of the country that are majority ethnic Russian or Russian-speaking. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, if they go that route, then they do have to control the cities. But certainly, if they could secure the political collapse of the Ukrainian government and the installation of of essentially a neutral government, like one that existed prior to the 2014 coup, without taking the major urban centers, which, as you said, would be extremely bloody and violent, I think certainly they would they would prefer to do that.
1: According to some of our Russian-speaking friends who live here in the United States, but are monitoring Russian media, that there's been an interesting rhetorical change in some of the Russian official media just in the past few days. One, according to this one friend of ours, who's looking at the media, Russian media, the Ukrainian army is now referred to as the army of the occupying regime and the joint Donetsk, Luhansk and Russian armies as quote liberation forces. And the whole war is now reframed as a war against a fascist regime. That's, a, according to this person, a drastic change to the way the Russian media and Russia was talking about the Ukrainian military a short while ago in a somewhat respectful way. They were making the distinction that the Ukrainian military, unlike the Azov Brigade, unlike the right sector, unlike the Nazi brigades, that the Ukrainian soldiers were, quote, serving under oath, meaning they're doing what they're lawfully required to do. Now this language, according to this person, has shifted that it's no longer a a sort of a respect for the existing Ukrainian military, but rather that it's an illegitimate force. And if what I'm saying is actually accurate, and again, I don't read Russian, Walter, you don't, Nicole does not, but this person who is a reliable friend is reading Russian media. It would seem to me that this would be a significant change and
2: let's just talk about what would account for this change in rhetoric. Right. Well, I mean, to me, that signals that the Russian political and military establishment is giving serious thought to a long-term presence in the country. I mean, another component of that early rhetoric that you were talking about, which you know, emphasized how the ukrainian soldiers could essentially refuse illegitimate orders from the kiev government how you know they you know were essentially people who could come over to the other side another part of that was the russian government would really emphasize that they do not have any intention to occupy ukraine that they were carrying out a demilitarization and denazification campaign that would essentially be one quick blow or one decisive blow to break up the groups like the Azov Battalion and to essentially ensure that NATO could not use Ukraine as a staging ground for military bases, weapons, etc. So now if they're using the language that you know, the Ukrainian military is the occupying army and the Russian army is the liberating army, the army of liberation, then the army of liberation, of course, has the right to stay in the territories that it liberated, right? It's not like an outside imposition. They could in a way that's politically legitimate, stay there and set up new authorities and potentially guarantee the security and longevity of those new political authorities that would be, of course, not recognized by the government in Kiev or you know wherever the Zelensky government has to flee in a scenario like this one. That is something that I think has a lot of danger. It's a very dangerous prospect for Russia because members of the imperialist establishment in the West, like Hillary Clinton, for instance, are already openly talking about the creation of an Afghanistan-style insurgency in Ukraine, where people from all over the world, and inevitably those people will include a lot of fascists and neo-Nazis, would be invited to travel to Ukraine, join military units, and essentially wage a guerrilla struggle against the occupying Russian armed forces. They're openly talking about this possibility, and so that's something that Russia would have to contend with if they really do go through with this change that appears to be in the works or at least being given serious thought.
1: Well, we know for sure that the United States was anticipating that the Russians were going to move into Ukraine And we're going to play some audio clips. Again, we want to remind the audience how Anthony Blinken and other U.S. government officials were actually talking about the possibility of a Russian military invasion or intervention into Ukraine. And what's noteworthy about it when you hear these audio clips a month later is how unalarmed they were. They're talking about it as if it's almost a sure thing. It's going to definitely happen. But they're sort of saying, well, we're ready for it more, you know, if he doesn't do it, fine. But if he does do it, if he, Putin, does invade, we're ready for that too. Matter of fact, that's the, I'm looking at a Wall Street Journal front page, Anthony Blinken, end of January. We're ready for either option. There's no sense of alarm, really. There's a notification by U.S. government officials that a military action is possible, but they don't really seemed that alarmed about it. And I think that's because they were expecting it. And in some ways, not only expecting it, but welcoming it, at least welcoming what they anticipated would be the Russian military operation, which would be minimally to take the eastern part of the country, the the Donetsk People's Republic part, the Luhansk People's Republic, maybe other parts of the of the Donbass region where the people are Russian, the people are ethnically Russian, Russian language speaking. And of course, Crimea, which was part of Russia until it was transferred in 1954 administratively when Russia and Ukraine were one country, the Soviet Union. Anyway, we wanna play some of those audio clips, but again, I wanna go back to what my theory is of why this happened and why it's happened the way it happened is that the United States, when it realized that Russia was drawing red lines, saying, look, you have to negotiate with us, you have to guarantee to us that Ukraine, which shares a 1,200-mile-long border with us, isn't going to be a staging ground for advanced conventional and nuclear missiles pointed at us right on our border, and Ukraine cannot enter NATO. When the U.S. government knew that Russia was very serious and was amassing troops, they took a hard line. They kept saying, Blinken kept saying over and over again, Russia's demands are a non-starter. And then at the same time, and part of the audio clips that I want to play, is that they started pouring in more weapons to Ukraine. Now, this obviously was not only not a secret, but they were advertising it. Blinken is talking about it in some of these addresses. So they're making it clear to the Russians, look, we know this is a serious matter for you. We know this is your red line. And guess what? To hell with you. We're going to keep doing exactly what we're doing. You don't tell us whether or not Ukraine can be moved into NATO. You don't tell Ukraine who its military alliances can be or not be. And so they kind of expected that when pushed into a corner that Putin would take some sort of military action. I think what they didn't expect is that Russia would move so decisively, not just in the east, but also in the south and the north of the country. And you know, when I look at what this new language that's being employed by the Russian media, that the, the Donetsk People's Republic military forces and Luhansk People's Republic military forces and the Russian military forces are in fact liberating forces and the forces of the Ukrainian government are occupying forces, That's because of two things. One, they are now showing clearly or believe clearly, especially in Maripol, that the fascists are working hand-in-hand with the non-fascist wing of the Ukrainian military, meaning they're one force now in Maripol. So the distinction between a non-fascist Ukrainian military and the fascist parts of Ukrainian society become a distinction without a difference, meaning that they're really working together. And as, you know, 40,000 civilians came out of Maripol, according to some of these same media reports, and over the weekend, 40,000 more civilians came out, and many of those civilians are making the claim, at least this is what the Russian media is reporting, the claim that they were prevented from leaving, not by the Russians, but by the Ukrainian a National Guard and military forces, which are, again, a coalition between the Nazi Azov forces and the standard conventional Ukrainian military. Second reason, I believe, is that when you look at the map, Russian forces are clearing the way all the way between Crimea, which is a peninsula in the south sort of center, southeastern section of Ukraine in the Black Sea, where Russia has its biggest naval base, all the way up to donetsk and luhansk meaning the whole eastern region all the way to crimea is being you know the focus of russia's military operations that will create a land bridge between crimea which is a peninsula and the russian mainland and when you look to the west russian forces are also moving in the direction of odessa but not trying to take odessa that looks again like a land bridge for crimea all the way across the southern part of Ukraine, all the way up to the borders with Moldova or Romania. So you can see the outlines of the eastern and southern parts of Ukraine coming under Russian military occupation of forces. Anyway, this appears to be what the game plan is. Maybe there was an initial game plan, Walter, as you said, that the Ukrainian military would crumble, that Zelensky would run away. That did not happen. The resistance was stiff, according to all the media reports. But if the Russian game plan in the beginning did succeed, obviously there is a second game plan, and we can see it unfolding in front of us. And again, I'll just get you to comment real quick, and then I want to go to back to these Anthony Blinken audio clips, which are quite
2: interesting to hear in retrospect. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, just to add one other detail to that, you know, this is oddly kind of intersecting with a much older separatist political and military standoff that goes on in Moldova because actually the specific part of Moldova or the territory claimed by Moldova that that land bridge you're talking about would connect the Russian mainland to and connect Crimea to is an area that actually already has a Russian military presence. It's a breakaway region of Moldova called Transnistria that has been Self-governing since the 1990s, retained the significant sections of its old Soviet-style of government, and there are hundreds of Russian peacekeepers there, and, and have been for many years. So, connecting those two pieces of territory, I think that clearly has strategic value to Russia.
1: And again, I just want to—I keep promising that we're going to play this Anthony Blinken clip or clips, but I want to just keep making other points too, Walter. So in March 1991, a referendum was held in the old Soviet Union by those who were opposing the Soviet Union, wanting to break it up, the capitalist counter-revolutionaries, And they were quite convinced that after three or four years of disintegration under the Gorbachev-Yeltsin regime, that the majority of people in the Soviet Union would vote to dissolve the Soviet Union. That's what the referendum was all about. And instead, 70 percent of the people said they wanted to preserve the Soviet Union, and in Ukraine, I really want to go over these numbers for people. This was again, March, 1991. The majority of people in the Ukraine voted to stay inside the Soviet Union. They wanted to stay with Russia and the other republics that made up the Soviet Union. The numbers are quite strong in terms of how many people voted yes, I think it was 71% of Ukrainians voted we want to stay in the Soviet Union. In the east, in Crimea, in Donetsk, in Luhansk, the numbers were 86 and to 87% of those people voted, yes, we want to remain in the Soviet Union. Kiev, the capital, was an outlier really because it was 44%, meaning a minority, a big minority, but not the majority of people wanted to stay in the Soviet Union, meaning the majority of residents in Kiev wanted to go out of the Soviet Union. And in the Western provinces, then that's where the strength of the the Maidan protests were and the people who want to be certainly with NATO and the EU and not with Russia. In those areas, in the far West, it was 16 to 19% wanted to stay in the Soviet Union. So, somewhere between 80 and 85% of those areas of Ukraine wanted to leave the Soviet Union. Walter, real quick before we get to the Antony Blinken clips, why was that?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it it reflects how the modern territory of Ukraine came to be. You know, when the Soviet Revolution happened, when the Bolshevik Revolution happened in 1917, large parts of territory that were majority ethnic Russian were added to the newly formed Ukrainian Soviet Republic. The idea was that instead of the Tsarist Empire, the King's Empire, where Russians reigned supreme, and all other peoples were oppressed and downtrodden. The Soviet Union would be a union of co-equal republics, and Ukraine was one of those republics. And you know, significant, very, very large sections of territory were added that had a lot of Russian people living there, and that was the east and the south of the country, and that area in the west where the number was really, really low. The only like really big cluster of the country where you know the referendum lost overwhelmingly. That is ironically the most recent addition to Ukrainian territory. That part of the world had only been considered Ukraine for the last 40 years at that point. It was added at the conclusion of World War II from territory that used to be part of Hungary and Poland, especially the key city of Lviv, which is appearing in the news a lot lately. So so I think that is reflected in the referendum results.
0: And just to emphasize what Walter is saying, like looking at a map of Ukraine and all the provinces, there were only three provinces and Kiev that didn't want the Soviet Union to be preserved. And the other 22 provinces all in large numbers did. Yeah. It was really overwhelming.
1: Well, of course, you know, when we're thinking about Ukraine, we're looking at the war. Why did it start? We're placing the onus and responsibility first and foremost on the United States And, you know, it doesn't mean that we support the Russian invasion into Ukraine. That's not what we're saying. But we, you know, place the onus and the responsibility on the endless expansion of NATO done in a deliberately provocative and reckless way by the West and specifically by the United States, knowing that it would push Russia into a corner. At the same time, the great tragedy here is that the Ukrainian people, the Russian people, the other... Many, many ethnicities and nationalities that constituted the former Soviet Union, they all had Soviet citizenship. You know, statehood wasn't mainly uh, revolving around ethnicity. This was overcoming the age-old, you know, sort of struggles between different peoples and different ethnicities and nationalities. The Soviet Union solved the problem in many ways, not fully, not completely, but in many ways solved the problem of the ethnic divisions and rivalries that could always be manipulated by the elites from Poland or the elites from Ukraine or the elites from Russia or the elites from Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania or Georgia, where the elites tried to dragoon their own, the people of their own nationality or ethnicity to support their efforts, and their efforts were largely driven by private property goals. Like, we want this land because it's gonna belong to me, the elite, the landowners etc. etc. The Soviet Union helped overcome much of that. And and the way the Soviet Union evolved gave so much support to the non-Russian peoples, so that even though there was the the legacy in the history of Great Russian chauvinism, where non-Russian peoples had lived under the yoke of czarism and Russian expansionism, there was a giant affirmative action program. So you look at the Advances made by the people in Azerbaijan or Armenia or Tajikistan or Uzbekistan. I mean, monumental social achievements under the Soviet Union because of the way the Soviet nationality policy was constructed. And so, of course, the great tragedy is here we are. Russians are killing Ukrainians and Ukrainians are killing Russians. And this national animosity and hatred and war, it's a tragedy. It's a reflection of the bigger tragedy, the collapse of the Soviet Union itself. Again, something that was very desired by the United States. The U.S. has been all about this from the beginning. You know, at the moment Ukraine became independent and not part of Russia or not part of the Soviet Union, the U.S. started pumping billions of dollars into what they called the project for democracy in Ukraine, which was nothing more than to move Ukraine into an American sphere of influence. In 2008, the United States announced that Ukraine was going to be part of NATO along with Georgia, another important former Soviet non-Russian republic. And the Russians at that time said, no, you're not. You're not going to make Ukraine and Georgia part of NATO. We're not going to let that happen. So, you know, this is the great tragedy that following the overthrow of the Soviet Union, the dissolution of the first socialist country, you know, we have these kind of antagonisms. Anyway, let's go back and I want to just spend another minute or two or maybe five minutes or maybe 10 minutes on Ukraine. But I want to go to these clips with Anthony Blinken because, Nicole, when you listen to them and you realize this was before February 24th, before the Russians moved in. Well, anyway, I'm going to let the audience listen for itself and then get both of your comments.
0: Ryan, this is the first of one of the clips we have. It's a little long, but I think it's important to listen to. This is from a speech that Blinken made on January 26th.
3: We're not releasing the document publicly because we think that diplomacy has the best chance to succeed if we provide space for confidential talks. We hope and expect that Russia will have the same view and will take our proposal seriously. I expect to speak to Foreign Minister Lavrov in the coming days after Moscow has had a chance to read the paper and is ready to discuss next steps. There should be no doubt about our seriousness of purpose when it comes to diplomacy, and we're acting with equal focus and force to bolster Ukraine's defenses and prepare a swift united response to further Russian aggression. Three deliveries of U.S. defensive military assistance arrive in Kyiv this week – carrying additional Javelin missiles and other anti-armor systems. 283 tons of ammunition and non-lethal equipment essential to Ukraine's frontline defenders More deliveries are expected in the days to come. we provided more defensive security assistance to Ukraine in the past year than in any previous year. Last week, I authorized U.S. allies, including Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, to provide U.S.-origin military equipment from their inventories for use by Ukraine. Also last week, we notified Congress of our intent to deliver to Ukraine the Mi-17 helicopters currently held in Defense Department inventories, five of them. Additionally, the Secretary of Defense announced on Monday that 8,500 U.S. service members currently stationed in Europe and the United States have been placed in heightened readiness – heightened readiness to deploy – to ensure that we're able to support the NATO response force swiftly if it's activated by the North Atlantic Council to harden the Allies' eastern flank. Other NATO Allies have also announced steps that they're prepared to take, and we expect more in the coming days.
1: So the reason I wanted to play this audio clip is it comes like almost a month to the day before Russia moves in. So Blinken says, and I just want to repeat this so people really get the point here. Blinken says, we have a diplomatic response to the Russians. We are going to respond to the letter. The Russians had sent a letter saying we demand these things, like Ukraine not be part of NATO. We're going to send a letter. We've sent a letter back to the Russians But we're not going to tell you what's in the letter because we consider diplomacy to be so important. We don't want to reveal it in public, but we've sent them a letter back. And then the whole rest of the speech is about how the U.S. is sending weapons to Ukraine, how the U.S. is ordering, basically instructing Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, all three of whom were part of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet republics, and also bordering Russia, we instructed them to send their weapons, the weapons we've already sent them, and they're part of NATO, we instructed them to send them to Ukraine. And now we're going to ask other NATO countries to send other weapons to Ukraine. So if you're Russia, Walter, if you're Russia and you're listening to Blinken, which undoubtedly they're listening very carefully, they hear, oh yeah, we have a diplomatic response, but guess what? It's so unimportant to... that we're not even going to tell the people in the United States what it is because under the pretext of guarding this precious diplomatic process. But what we can tell the American people and everyone is how many weapons we're sending to Ukraine at the very moment that they know that Russia is not only serious, has not only publicly stated that it has red lines, but that Russia has amassed military forces in Russia at the Ukraine border And in Belarus, Russia's ally, again, at Ukraine's border. I mean, the only way if you're Russian, you can interpret that speech is like, okay, they don't give a damn about negotiations. They're getting ready for war. They're not going to negotiate.
0: Before we go to Walter, I'm also really struck by this clip, too, because, you know, even this idea of like, well, you know, we want to make sure that you know that the diplomatic talks stay nice and secret well russia's already announced their red lines like that's half of the diplomacy is theirs are already like public and on the table i mean it's just the us keeping their side secret like that doesn't make any sense it's not helping anything
1: yeah it sounds to me like like if you're a dumb american pundit or a dumb american go-along commentator you're like Oh what else Anthony Blinken but if you're actually anyone with a critical faculty you listen to that speech and you think like they're not going to negotiate they're getting ready for war.
2: Yeah, I mean it shows how the government of the United States and all of the NATO governments view the people of Ukraine as as nothing more than pawns in their bigger game, their broader geopolitical game to dominate the world and contain Russia. I mean, the corporate media, of course, has been completely full with politicians stating their heartfelt sympathy for the people of Ukraine, how much their heart goes out to those who are suffering under the Russian bombardment. And that's having a big effect on public opinion because, of course, people are are rightfully devastated seeing these images of people suffering so greatly under conditions of war, but the political reality, the political truth that that type of coverage in the corporate media masks is what we're talking about here, that the government of the United States and NATO could have prevented this war from happening. They could have seriously engaged in diplomacy, which would have necessitated them backing off from their extreme aggressive posture. That would have spared the people of Ukraine from all of this suffering and in Russian workers too who are, you know, of course suffering under conditions of war and economic war as well. So it's complete hypocrisy, I think, complete hypocrisy when they talk about their humanitarian desire to defend the people of Ukraine from unprovoked attack.
0: So just a month later, we've got a couple of clips from the Sunday talk shows on uh, February 20th. So this is just a month after the speech we just heard.
1: Um, and four, day, and it's and four, four days, days
0: before the invasion. Right. So here's our first one. It's a little long. The other two are short. Mr. Secretary, let's start with what you just heard Clarissa reporting on. Uh, learning that troops from Russia and Belarus will continue those joint exercises there past their planned end date. What does that tell you? Does it make you more concerned about an invasion?
3: Uh, it does, and it uh, it tells us that the playbook that we laid out, I laid out at the U.N. Security Council last week, about uh, Russia trying to create uh, a series of, of provocations as justifications for aggression against Ukraine, uh, is is going forward. We've seen that over the last few days. Now they're justifying the continuation of exercises in, so exercises in quotation marks that they said would end now, the continuation indefinitely of those quote-unquote exercises, on the situation in eastern Ukraine, a situation that they've created uh, by uh, continuing to ramp up tensions. Meanwhile uh, they've been escalating uh, the forces they have across uh, Ukraine's borders uh, over the last months from 50,000 to the forces to 100,000 to now more than 150,000. So. All of this, along with the false flag operations we've seen unfold over the weekend, uh, tells us that the playbook that we laid out uh, is moving forward.
1: All right. No big deal. The playbook we laid out, Russia's going to invade. But might you not then think, let's go back to the negotiating table? But that's not his drift at all. Let's play another audio clip, Nicole. I know the last two are short. Then I want to talk a little bit about Anthony Blinken.
0: So you mentioned the false flag uh, operation. You have that. You also have, as Clarissa talked about, a kindergarten hit by a shell. Uh, and you have a cyber attack that's already happened. Ukraine is reporting dozens of ceasefire violations. Is Russia's plan to invade already in motion?
3: It, uh, as we've described it, uh, everything leading up to the, the actual invasion appears to be
1: taking place. All right, and we have one final clip.
0: What are the
1: chances that Vladimir Putin is bluffing? There's
3: there's always a chance, but every indication that we've seen, every move that he's made that has followed the the play that we laid out for the world to see uh, in front of the United Nations Security Council, he is following the script almost to the letter.
1: Walter, he's just not alarmed. He was like, the US is announcing that Russia will invade, and Russia is basically signaling that unless their demands are met by the United States and NATO, that they're willing to take military action. Lincoln says the same. He says, this was the playbook from the beginning. Again, if the U.S. really cared about Ukrainian lives, wouldn't they, knowing what they know and knowing what they say they know, wouldn't they like do something urgent to get back to the negotiating table?
2: Yeah, because I think that the calculation that Blinken and and other people in the State Department and Pentagon made was that a Russian invasion of Ukraine would probably go badly for Russia, or at least they, they felt that there is a good chance that this would lead to the international isolation of Russia and potentially military defeat or a military stalemate. So human life means absolutely nothing to these people. These calculations are the only thing that they make decisions based on. So they probably thought, OK, well, you know what, Russia, if you want to go ahead and invade, we, we can work with that, too. Look, go ahead. We'll meet you on the battlefield.
1: Yeah. As a matter of fact, Blinken said, and this was again in January, end of January. And I have it right in front of me on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. He says, well, if they're ready to negotiate, we're ready. If they're ready to do something else, we're ready for that too. Meaning they were all ready to go. And again, you know, so people understand that this isn't that novel. In end of July, 1990, the U.S. ambassador to Baghdad, April Gillespie, met with Saddam Hussein. She was summoned to meet with Saddam Hussein, and she came and she had consultations with the State Department before she went. And they all knew what the purpose of the meeting was. Saddam was going to talk to her about the crisis that was going on at that time between Kuwait and Iraq. Now, Kuwait was historically part of the same landmass. The British created Kuwait, the Iraqis view Kuwait the way the Chinese view Hong Kong, that it was a part of their country that had been basically stolen by British colonialism. They knew there was a lot of historical animosity, just like there's the historical issues of ethnicity and the role of foreign powers in this case, in the case of Russia and Ukraine. And Kuwait had been provoking Iraq, which was quite remarkable, because Kuwait is a tiny little country compared to Iraq and Iraq had this long, you know, military record and it had just fought Iran for eight years. It was hardened, battle hardened. And the Kuwaitis were stealing Iraqi oil. They were insisting that Iraq pay its entire Iran-Iraq war debt to Kuwait. They were deliberately provoking Saddam Hussein. And so Saddam talks to April Gillaspie and says, what is the position of your government on the current dispute between Iraq and Kuwait. And April Gillespie, as instructed by the State Department, tells Saddam Hussein at that meeting, and this is well verified, April Gillaspie herself has verified this story. April Gillaspie says to Saddam, quote, it's not a complete quote, I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close. The United States has no position on inter-Arab disputes. End of quote. She leaves the meeting Five days later, Iraq invades Kuwait, topples the Kuwaiti government, intends to put into place in Kuwait City a pro-Iraqi government that won't continue to fight with them. And the U.S. immediately starts to dispatch hundreds of thousands of troops to Saudi Arabia and scotches the possibility of an Arab League negotiated summit where Iraq expected that its claims against Kuwait would be heard and that there would be some resolution. Instead, the U.S. rejects all negotiations, says, look, Iraq is an aggressor and within a couple months has put 400,000 troops into the Middle East. And then there's no possibility for a negotiated settlement. And the reason was the U.S. wanted the war with Iraq. This was sort of the end of the Cold War. The U.S. was going to take down the government in Iraq and the other, you know, governments in this resource-rich region, the Middle East, the, where two-thirds of the world's known oil supply, the U.S. was going to recreate the Middle East. So the U.S. wanted Iraq to invade Kuwait so that it would have a pretext for the U.S. to go to war against Iraq. And then a pretext to maintain sanctions, Walter, that lasted for the next 13 years on Iraq. So much sanctions that the United Nations estimated that 8,000 Iraqis, 5,000 children under the age of five, and 3,000 adults, mainly their grandparents, in other words, the weak and the vulnerable in Iraqi society, were, according to the United Nations' own statistics, dying from sanctions. So Iraq was completely weakened and hobbled, and instead of being a regional power that could contend with the United States over control over oil in this resource-rich region, Iraq was basically destroyed prior to the U.S. invasion in March 2003. The U.S. sort of setting a trap or recognizing that one of the options might very well be the invasion by another country If the U.S. either prefers the invasion, to use it as a pretext for a larger U.S. foreign policy initiative, or isn't in fact bothered by the Russian military invasion because it can be made to work for U.S. policy, which of course has been, as we know for the last decade, to contain Russia, to put Russia in a container. Now Russia's in a container. Walter, I have to say, when I'm listening to Antony Blinken, he sounds like a preppy, privileged, you know, empowered guy from the bourgeoisie. And he's so happy, he's so happy to be on TV talking about, well, we're ready for Russia either way. If they invade, fine. He doesn't give a damn about
2: Ukrainians. Yeah, I mean, who, who talks like this? Like what kind of life experience prepares you to be a manager of imperialism? I mean, I think this is actually like a really relevant question. And I mean, if you look at his life, it's like the most disgusting, privileged, bourgeois, ruling class life you can imagine. I mean, so he was born in 1962. His father is Donald Blinken. And Donald Blinken was a founder of a major finance capital firm called Warburg Pincus. Today, it manages tens of billions of dollars of investments and assets, and he lived in New York City where Blinken went to the Dalton School. The Dalton School is one of the most elite private preparatory institutions in the country. It's part of the Ivy Preparatory School League. I bet you didn't know that there was an Ivy League for high schools. But I did Yeah, not. I mean, for the ruling class, that's true. Wow. So he went to the Dalton School, but then his parents broke up and his mom married somebody new. His mom married Samuel Pisar And Pizar was an elite corporate lawyer. His clients included some of the biggest corporations on the planet. And so young Antony Blinken moved to Paris. And instead of attending the <laughs> Dalton School, he went to École Jeanine Manuel, which is kind of like the Parisian equivalent of the Dalton School, one of wow. the most elite high schools in the country. And then when it came time to go to college, he went to Harvard where both his father and stepfather went. Both of them are alumni. Maybe that had something to do with his success there. Uh, And then he went on and got a law degree from Columbia Law School and practiced law in both New York City and in Paris. So, so yeah, I mean, somebody like that probably does think that he can just boss around literally the entire world. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Walter. That thank is you quite for a the bio. Anthony Blinken takedown.
1: Again, uh, Anthony Blinken isn't unusual in, in that regard, but when you hear him, you get the sense of that so called pedigree. Anyway, let's go on to another story. By the way, on Wednesday, we're going to be talking with Vijay Prashad about Ukraine and some of the history here that's completely unreported and unknown largely in the West, but a history that is extremely important. And of course, VJ is a preeminent author, journalist, and I know everyone will enjoy that conversation. That'll be this Wednesday on Breakthrough News at 7 p.m. and then Thursday as our regular podcast on The Real Story. Nicole, I was really hoping with Omicron that as Omicron was receding, that maybe we are coming to an end. But of course, that's me looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. There's going to be and is now another variant of Omicron. And one of the ways I wanted to start on this story, there's a number of really important elements to this. I mean, testing sites are being closed down around the country. That's like insane as a new variant is starting to spread But I want to talk also about the J&J vaccine, single shot, doesn't have to be refrigerated. A lot of us, or we were all reading media reports that it wasn't as effective as Moderna or the Pfizer shot. But in fact, it turns out it's pretty good. But then Johnson & Johnson decided, eh, we're done with COVID vaccine, we're moving on. Anyway, what's this story?
0: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing here is that J&J quite literally shut down their plant, like their plant that was making vaccines for the current pandemic that we're in, that was making vaccines that didn't need to be in the deep freeze, the specialized like frozen equipment that you need for the Moderna and Pfizer shots. It's only one shot. It's easier to get out to people. And just to emphasize for people, a lot of people who might be listening to the show have been vaccinated or fully vaccinated, might have a booster shot. There are still 48 countries around the world that are under a quarter fully vaccinated. 37 of them are on the African continent. The majority of countries in the African continent are under a quarter fully vaccinated. And then Johnson & Johnson decides, well, you know, actually, I'm not even going to editorialize. I'm going to read a few headlines here. Johnson & Johnson's easy-to-deliver COVID-19 shot is the vaccine of choice for much of the developing world, yet the American company, which has already fallen far behind on its deliveries to poorer countries, late last year quietly shut down the only plant making usable batches of the vaccine, according to people familiar with the decision. The facility in the Dutch city of Leiden has instead been making an experimental, but potentially more profitable vaccine to protect against an unrelated virus. So the globe is in the middle of a pandemic. It's killed, what are we at now? 900,000 people in the United States and far more globally. Six
1: Six million globally.
0: Six million globally.
1: So like, just think about that. Johnson & Johnson, the board of directors, I don't know. Is it 10 people? Is it 15 people? Is it 20 people?
0: Maybe it's a hundred people.
1: But they decide. They <laughs> but decide. they get
0: to decide. They get to decide whether this vaccine that is truly life-saving, you know, gets to be made or isn't made or- and they're not only that, they're basing it only on profit. They're not basing this decision on whether people actually need this vaccine or you know whether this other vaccine that they're talking about making is more needed. They're making this decision based on profit. And they've decided to shut down the plant. I mean, it's it would be truly unbelievable if we didn't sit here analyzing this all the time and understand what this system is. And the system is capitalism. That's the reason that this is and the, the case. And the
1: solution is like, This is why the private ownership of the means of production should be sort of relegated to the dustbin of history. You know, it shouldn't be a group of capitalists, the board of directors of Johnson & Johnson to decide whether or not a vaccine, a much needed, urgently needed, globally needed vaccine is being produced or not produced. They shouldn't have the right to make this decision. That's the case for socialism.
0: And if you think about it, someone might say to that, well, Brian, You know, it's their vaccine. They should be able to decide. Well, it's not their vaccine. Vaccines are based on decades, if not centuries, of data, of research, of science, not to mention the fact that it's not like anybody on that board is a chemist. It's not like anybody on that board made this vaccine or even contributed to this vaccine. All they're doing is sitting around and talking in their boardrooms. All they're doing is taking clients out to fancy lunches. Like the people who actually made this, I bet a lot of the people who went into chemistry, who went into science to make vaccines, did it because they wanted to actually help people.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the people who are on the board of directors are, are like Anthony Blinken. I mean, there are people who have gotten absolutely everything they wanted in their life and feel like everyday people's lives are totally disposable. And so they make these profit-driven decisions, both because they think they're entitled to and because they're compelled to by the system of of profit maximization called capitalism. And yeah, I mean, socialism is a question of power. That's what it fundamentally comes down to. The programs that a socialist government would implement, like universal health care, the right to a home, universal employment with union recognition, those are all very important. Those programs are important. But at the core of it, at the heart of what socialism means, it's about who gets to decide. Do the Anthony Blinkens of the world get to decide? Do these big pharma executives get to decide who lives and who dies, who gets access to life-saving medicine? Or is that the decision of society as a whole, the collective decision of society, which is composed in its vast, vast, vast majority by workers?
0: Yeah, that's such a good way to, to put that, Walter. And another part of this is that Johnson & Johnson, again, they get to be the ones to make this decision, did just sign a deal with a South African drug maker, Aspen Pharmacare, which will allow Aspen to actually make, sell, and distribute the vaccines, the J&J vaccines, under their own brand in Africa. But I just want to emphasize here that this is great. I mean, this is really good news. This means that this pharmaceutical company, this drug maker in South Africa will be able to, I mean, they'll be the ones making the decision. It won't be actually, you know, people in South Africa, but, you know, hopefully the drug maker in South Africa has an interest in, you know, getting this vaccine out to other countries on the continent. But even the initial deal that was initially struck back in November with Aspen and Johnson & Johnson, that initial deal gave Aspen no say where the vaccines go. So the initial deal actually had Aspen likely shipping the vaccines that they were making in South Africa, which is not very well vaccinated, out to other countries, Indeed. out to other continents.
1: Indeed, and a lot of vaccines are being manufactured in other developing parts of the world in India and then being shipped to Europe or exactly. shipped to the United States.
0: So I don't know what accounted for the shift. I'd be really interested to see if anything comes out about that. But according to J&J, the deal now will let Aspen kind of take over this and distribute it as they will. And for anybody who had been listening and reading and seeing that the J&J vaccine wasn't as effective, I think there's also new news coming out about that, that, you know, Pfizer and Moderna were, you know, the quote unquote gold standard for a while. These are the ones you have to get, but actually I'm gonna read a couple of different headlines. Actually, it turns out using real world data and using data that's actually from the United States, the J and J vaccine is also effective. Headline, one dose J&J COVID vaccine quietly effective throughout Delta surge. Real world claims data find often maligned vaccine showed a little waning over six months. That's from MedPage today. As picture of COVID vaccine durability gets clearer, J&J makes a strong showing. That's from NBC News. Kaiser Health News, over time, J&J vaccine proving as effective as other shots. At New York Times, mounting data shows J&J vaccine as effective as Pfizer and Moderna. So, you know- (laughs) I mean, this
1: would mean that if it's a single shot, it doesn't require the same sort of deep freeze.
0: Like specialized equipment.
1: Specialized equipment and technology. And if there was a desire and a commitment, this vaccine in particular could be mass-produced and distributed to everyone in Africa and everywhere else right away. I mean, this is not a complicated thing, actually. It's about will, and it's about who has the rights. I mean, here you have... J&J shutting down their facility, making the vaccine for months, and now deciding for profit to license it to a South African pharmaceutical company. Okay, but again, why not nationalize and internationalize pharmaceutical companies? Why should these pharmaceuticals belong to the capitalists? Why should they belong to the capitalists in a particular country? Let's nationalize them, socialize them, and internationalize them, and make them the property of the people of the world. I mean, and again, you talked about the chemists, the board of directors at J&J or Moderna or Pfizer. They're not the chemists. They're also not the janitors who clean the buildings and open the facilities and let the chemists come in. They're not the other workers who the chemists are relying on for all elements of their work, or the people who drive the trucks, or the people who are on the railroads who transport the drugs i mean these are workers these are always workers some are more specialized workers like the chemists or the people who are doing sanitation pickup which is also a very specialized job different but specialized i mean but it's all workers and yet it's the capitalists who actually not only do nothing they do they do worse than nothing when they stop a vaccine that's vitally needed By the people of the planet in the middle of a pandemic, when they say, no, we're not going to produce that because we can make more money by having a group of workers make a different vaccine or a different drug, that shows that the capitalists are actually, they're doing worse than nothing. They're actually preventing people who could acquire this vaccine, much needed vaccine from acquiring it.
0: I mean, plus all the materials that the chemists, scientists, whatever, and Johnson & Johnson and the materials that the sanitation workers are using, all those materials, a lot of them, I'm sure, are coming from other places, from workers around the world who also don't get a say in whether they get a vaccine that's only able to be produced from the materials that they're producing.
1: Yeah. Anyway, just one more in the many arguments making the case for socialism and certainly against capitalism. There's some other important news, though, Nicole, about COVID, of course, there's the new wave coming, but we're seeing statistics and about the impact of COVID, more statistics on the impact on on the black community. This ridiculous report, well, the report's not ridiculous. The facts in the report are ridiculous. States are actually closing testing sites right now while a new variant is starting to spread.
0: Yeah, so on the first front, I mean, This is really alarming. In January, the CDC found that hospitalization rates for Black patients reached the highest level for any racial or ethnic group since the dawn of the COVID pandemic. So go all the way back to, you know, when we were watching New York City just crumble under this pandemic, go, you know, all the way back to the very early days of the pandemic in in 2020. And the hospitalization rates for Black patients are the highest of any group This, two months ago, in 2022.
1: And it's not simply because people are unvaccinated. There is obviously the need for higher vaccination rates, but part of the reason for hospitalization, and this is what some of the COVID denialists pick up on, the people who get sickest from COVID, the people most likely to die from COVID, are those who have other health issues, either because they're older people, or they have other underlying health conditions. So if you have healthcare disparities and increased disease and illness among poor people or among communities that have been victimized either by poverty or racism, discrimination, or all of those things, like the black community, for instance, then the impact of COVID as a contributing factor to hospitalization is actually clearly... Observable, And that's what these statistics are showing us.
0: It is. I mean, when you look at this data, I mean, those factors are actually like one of the main, if not the main reason that a lot of the black community has been hit so much harder with COVID is because there is this disproportionate risk of having a lot of these other diseases of getting these serious health effects.
1: Again, also very clearly traceable to the absence of a national health plan so that working class and poor people have less access to decent health care. When you don't have a doctor, when you don't have easy access to health care, when you, when you have to make a choice if you're going to a doctor between or buying a health care insurance program, between that and paying other bills that you're also having trouble paying, these are the reasons poor people generally get sicker and have adverse outcomes and why there's such a shocking disparity in life expectancies as well.
0: You know, not to mention, Brian, the the other, I think, important component is how disproportionate the black community is also the face of our country. The workers who are the the people who are going to work aren't working remotely. If you're an essential worker, you're getting exposed more often to coronavirus particles. You're getting exposed more often. And I think that's a, a really big component, too.
2: Just to give one, you know, local example of that, I'm sitting here in Philadelphia, in one neighborhood of Philadelphia called Strawberry Mansion, which is a a deeply oppressed black neighborhood in North Philadelphia, the life expectancy is 68 years, 68 years. But just five miles away in a part of the city called Society Hill, this is where the Liberty Bell is. So in Society Hill, the average life expectancy is 88 years old. So five miles in the same city and a world of class difference and racist oppression means that people live 20 years less. It shaves 20 years off of your life on average. I mean, it's unbelievable the level of cruelty we're talking about.
0: And just to hit home and hammer home again, you know, that this isn't just about vaccination in the black community during the Omicron wave, there was a greater share of hospitalized patients who had been vaccinated compared with the Delta wave. So, I mean, there are people who are getting vaccinated and are still getting hospitalized. And, you know, that likely has a lot to do with some of these factors that we're talking about. The factors that, you know, explain why in Philadelphia, in the Strawberry Mansion neighborhood, that your life expectancy is that much lower. I mean. These things are all very connected. I wanted to come back to the new reports that states are starting to close mass coronavirus testing sites. I mean, this harkens back to mid-pandemic, which we look at as this, you know, if you look back into the pandemic, it feels like it was all the same. It was all horrendous. It was all, you know, very hard. And and of course, why would you close any testing sites? Mid-pandemic, you'll recall that the Binax Now Abbott Laboratory company was destroying rapid test kits and rapid test cards. I mean, this is the same kind of decision-making, including states that you, you know, you might think, oh, it's going to only be Southern states closing these testing sites. No. New Hampshire closed all their state-run sites on Tuesday, state-run testing sites. Massachusetts will have closed a majority by April 1st. South Carolina has been gradually closing them this month, and Utah has been closing them since February. This is, we are still in a pandemic And there are more variants coming. So the idea to close these down is just completely nonsensical.
1: Parts of the population did perfectly fine economically during COVID and big parts of the population were devastated, lost jobs, businesses closed, 100,000 businesses were shut down. Uh, A lot of people couldn't pay rent. We know that there was a, a moratorium on evictions and then that was allowed to elapse on the federal level and on the state level. And you can see right now the numbers of people being evicted. It's a big spike going on around the country. Also, Nicole, people are being shut off from heat and light utility shutoffs.
0: Yeah, the total level of debt now to utility companies is about $22 billion. I was reading an article that profiles the New York region in particular, which Con Ed is the company that runs utilities. And they essentially are blaming energy prices, which is ridiculous because, well, let's just take it on its face. Let's say, sure, energy prices caused the fact that people are now getting their energy shut off and are having these huge bills. Well, when faced with an outcry, Con Ed cut the customer prices. Quote, electricity costs did decrease in February, and one factor may have been Con Edison's decision to reduce what it charges for supplying power by 8.8 cents per kilowatt hour following the outcry over high bills, unquote. So... (laughs) You can't just blame energy prices when Con Ed is still making a profit. They're still the ones deciding and they what ge- the prices they, are going to be. They take
1: advantage of high oil or gas prices and jack up the prices even more because, again, all of these companies, these so-called utility companies, aren't really public utilities. They're profit-making corporations. They should be public utilities, but they want to make sure their investors, and of course that's the biggest investors, get a handsome return on their investment. So who pays for that? Consumers. Working class and poor people, obviously in many tens, hundreds of thousands of people around the country right now can't pay their electric bill or their gas bill, and they're losing the ability to turn the lights
0: on. They're losing the ability to turn the lights on, to turn the water on, the very basic things that we need. I mean, including internet as well, right? Internet is also at this point a very basic thing that you know you cannot have a job and, and not have, you cannot access benefits if you need to without having the internet. And, you know, the other risk that I think we've seen highlighted, especially in New York, is if electricity is expensive and it's cold, then maybe you don't use your central heat, but maybe you buy some space heaters. And then, as we've seen in several mass apartment buildings in New York City, then your space heaters might actually catch fire and burn down your apartment building. I mean, the fact that that has happened multiple times this winter on the East Coast is clearly a reflection of the fact that these bills are so expensive and that, you know, we all have to have heat. We all have to have water. We all have to have internet. Why is this something where we're paying for this individually?
2: And the other side of that is that, you know, extreme heat waves are becoming increasingly common, right? I mean, that's part of climate change. If you don't have electricity, you can't use air conditioning. You can't even plug in a fan. And, and so a lot of people die in these heat waves. They tend to be very impoverished people who don't have access to those basic utilities, especially elderly people and especially people who are sick.
0: So instead of using the money that goes to these stockholders, that goes to these, the uber wealthy. Instead of using the money to give to them or to increase their stocks, I don't know, we could use it to just make sure people have electricity, make sure people have the basic, you know, kind of air conditioning and heat that they need to survive our ever heating and, you know, ever changing climate. I mean, that would make sense to me, but we would need to nationalize the energy industry, which I think would be a great idea.
2: And instead, the actual decision that the capitalists make, like literally actually what they've decided to do, the consequence of their actions is to kill the sick and the elderly in the pursuit of profits. Since you
1: mentioned the Uber wealthy, I wanted to mention somebody who may have been wealthy once but isn't wealthy now. Afghanistan's last finance minister is now an Uber driver here in Washington, D.C., Khalid Payenda, Afghanistan's finance minister, last summer was overseeing a $6 billion budget. That was the national budget, the lifeblood of the government. The government was at that time fighting for its survival. The U.S. moved on after Afghanistan. It pulled out at the end of August. Anthony Blinken, Walter, moved on. He's doing quite well. But in Afghanistan, the the former finance minister, according to this Washington Post reporter. He's the father of four children. He's at the wheel of his Honda Accord here in Woodbridge, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. He said, if I complete 50 trips in the next two days, I will receive a $95 bonus. And then he expressed his gratitude that he wasn't going to be starving. It shows such a dichotomy between the governments in the developing world that are functioning basically as an extension of American power, including their, their elite forces and the U.S. capitalist metropole itself. I mean, when the U.S. government goes to war in Iraq or in Afghanistan, none of the officials do anything but continue to make lots of money, even if they've committed terrible war crimes, even if they've you know taken actions that have cost the lives of Tens of thousands of Americans, either by death or life-changing injuries, or millions of people in other countries like Libya, like Iraq, like Afghanistan. You know, the wealthy, the affluent, the well-to-do in the United States, you know, life goes on. Life goes on. No recriminations. It's really something. The finance minister of Afghanistan from eight months ago, six months ago, now in order to survive driving an Uber, here in Washington, D.C. And it just reminds me, Walter, You know, at the end of the Vietnam War, a great number of the top personnel from South Vietnam ended up opening up restaurants, Vietnamese restaurants here in the Washington, D.C. area. Again, as long as they're a functional sort of servant of U.S. imperialism or Western imperialism, fine, and they can accrue certain benefits, but when imperialism
2: doesn't need them or can't use them, Again, consigned to the dustbin. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the purpose of the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan was never to, you know, do something nice for the people of Afghanistan. It was to control that country. And so these local elites who go along with the U.S. military occupation or in other countries that go along with, you know, undue U.S. influence, you know, they're great. They're allowed to have their you know, wealth and power only insofar as they allow the United States to do what they want to do in that country. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just, you know, kick to the side at the end of that. There's sort of a specific unique combination of factors that I think makes the U.S. bourgeoisie maybe especially dangerous. And that's on the one hand, they have nearly unlimited money and power. They've amassed so much wealth, and power military and otherwise that they can get away with almost everything. And at the same time, there are never any consequences. There's absolutely no accountability for them, both in terms of the justice in the broader sense, right? Like being brought to justice, being held to account for their horrible crimes against humanity all around the world. But even in in sort of like the bourgeois professional sense, like if you screw it up, right? If you make a mess out of a situation, there's still not accountability there too. So you can have these incredibly dangerous Murderous, incompetent people in charge for a really, really long time, and the whole world suffers the consequences.
0: Those are really great points, Walter. And there are a lot of people in the United States, too, who are not facing any consequences for their actions, including in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where I think we all know very well that Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted.
1: and Jacob Blake was and Jacob a, Blake was been shot, you know, five times by or five times, I think, by Kenosha police and left paralyzed
0: and a colleague of the police who shot Jacob Blake has now on March 4th footage was just released last week, Sean Goodschao. He was off duty and his off duty moonlighting job is as a school resource officer at Lincoln middle school in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He broke up a fight by kneeling on a 12 year old girl's neck for at least by my count. I mean, this isn't exact, but looking at the video, at least 30 seconds, the fight is split up. Somebody's holding the other girl back. You know, that's how we all grow up, I think, watching school fights, right? Like somebody's holding somebody back and somebody's holding someone else back, and you kind of separate them and you're done. No. One person is holding one girl back. And then this cop, Sean Goodchow, runs in, grabs the other girl who's fighting, throws her on the ground, and puts his knee on her neck. It's just disgusting. Like we've seen where this goes. This has to be something that police cannot do. And clearly, despite the fact that Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for minutes, killed him, and there was a you know a massive uprising for months and months. You know that doesn't stop Sean Goodshaw from doing this. That just tells me that we cannot have these police doing these things. Like this is not the way forward. I know you're not allowed to be speechless in radio, but I'm so speechless and amazed watching this video, thinking, you know, that there was this adult man who decided that the way to restrain a 12-year-old girl, watch the video, she's tiny, was to put his knee on her neck. There was so many other ways to deal with this, and that's not what he chose. And again, you know, he was working off duty for the school district, but he's a Kenosha policeman. He's now resigned from his position as the school security officer, but, you know, no other consequences have yet come. And he's actually complained about the fact that the school district hasn't stood up for him, so.
2: That's true, and that's what the cops always do. I mean, they ridiculously try to present themselves as the victim. I mean, the cops who murdered Breonna Taylor, for instance, they, after murdering Breonna Taylor, charged her ex-boyfriend, who was in her apartment at the time, with attempted murder. They charged the victim with attempted murder. So this is par for the course when it comes to the police's handbook. All right, Walter, let's talk about the big stories in Liberation News this week. So, several articles that I want to highlight for everybody this week. One is titled, A Year After the Atlanta Spa Shootings, Why Are Asian Americans Still Under Attack? Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people went into the streets about one year ago to show their outrage after the massacre of Asian women in spas outside of Atlanta sparked a nationwide movement. This article reflects on that anniversary and a lot of the political issues that that struggle dealt with and continues to deal with today. Another article I want to recommend is titled World War III Pressure Mounts on Biden to Launch War on Russia with No-Fly Zone. This talks about the speech that Ukrainian President Zelensky gave to Congress and the extreme danger of a no-fly zone. You can also find a link here to a brochure titled Why We Should All Oppose a No-Fly Zone Over Ukraine. You can download that and distribute it at your neighborhood, to your co-workers, family, and friends, and so on. The last article that I want to recommend is titled, No Charges for Killer Cops, Protests Continue in Chicago to Demand Justice for Adam Toledo and Anthony Alvarez. This is about a struggle against racist police brutality and violence in Chicago and how people are uniting and fighting back to demand justice from the system. You can find out more at liberationnews.org.
1: All right, and Nicole, of course, we can't do this show every week without the support of our patrons and people who subscribe, who become patrons, who help us make the show possible. We also have a monthly webinar where people, you know, this patron community comes together. We talk together. People can ask me anything that you want to ask me. We'll talk again, of course, in depth about some of the topics that we're discussing every show. Anyway, let's just talk about the upcoming webinar and again, urging people to become subscribers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We cannot do this show without you all, and we're very happy to have the support of, of so many of you. And if you listen to the show every episode or once a week or once a month or even once a year and you value it, we really need your support. And We encourage you to become a patron, whether it's you know $2 a month or $200 a month you know, any amount is extremely helpful for us. And we we deeply appreciate all of your support. So become a patron by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program. And then once you do that, you'll see a post where you can register for our monthly seminar, which this month is on Monday, this coming Monday, March 28th. It'll be at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific.
1: All right. And we know, of course, that many, many thousands of people listen to, to every episode. And we're grateful that you're listening. We're grateful to be able to produce this show. But again, for those who can, and we know more of you can, subscribe to the show and help us make this happen.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. Here